Welcome back to another episode of Sean Eds Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And we're bringing you some playoff baseball stories this month. That's right. Playoff stories on our bi-weekly baseball history podcast where the story catcher doesn't know what the story pitcher is going to be telling them. That's right. So you're winding up today. You got us a good one. I am going for back-to-back outings. That's right. That's right. Uh... Definitely pitching on short rest. Yeah, this one's less of a knuckler this time. This uh, one's more of a changeup. Oh, shit. You know, but uh, yeah, uh, before we get started, I want to tell people to follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and on Instagram at Doing.Baseball. That's right. And uh, yeah, give us a review, give us a rating if you can. Uh, yeah, every October we try to bring you stories specifically from playoff or World Series history. So. Uh, not just this episode, but the next episode too is going to be a, a playoff story. I think there's only two months of the year that we we have stipulations for what our stories have to be. Mm-hmm, that's true, and this is one of them. So, so all right. So I'm going to stick to it. But uh, before I get into it, I, I want to say about the last episode I did when I told the story about Ty Cobb's Parents? family history. Yeah, yeah. Um, I sort of implied that it was like, you know not really talked about that much and you know i i think it is kind of forgotten a little bit but uh it is i, I was watching some ken burns baseball today to sort of get some notes on my story and yep. and it is mentioned in ken burns baseball so it's not really as is uh unknown as maybe we implied but uh I, I i found i heard an awesome quote in it that i just want to mention that a writer said that Cobb would climb a mountain to punch an echo <laughs> 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 that is uh that is a beauty uh didn't make it in last week but good good yeah he would definitely do that yeah um so but- anyway moving on from that um i'll get started on this story with october upon us sean as we mentioned earlier just uh now and as we've done in the past we take this month to tell some stories of the postseason today will be no different the story actually begins in uh, September, so I'm sort of breaking the rules. That's okay. But uh, the story is about a playoff race, and the summation comes on the day that now we as Blue Jays fans now lament with our crushing defeat at the hands of the Seattle Mariners on October 8th. Yeah, I thought we'd get through this without mentioning that. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, but uh, it's it's relevant because it's also the day that the Giants fans would have lamented over 110 years ago. Ooh. Okay, so this story, Sean, will harken back actually to our very first episode ever. Ah. Which, if you recall, was about the alleged billy goat curse that plagued the Cubs for over 70 years. Okay. We sort of already did a curse episode with the curse of Colonel Sanders, but um, by the end of that very first episode, we surmised that uh, perhaps the Cubs were cursed by the presence of Murphys at every Cubs opportunity for glory but eventually reached the more reasonable conclusion that the Cubs were simply cursed by poor management. Pretty much. Yeah. So, But today, Sean, I wish to reopen the case, if you will, and offer my hypothesis that perhaps the Cubs were cursed by the baseball gods for taking their 1908 World Series under some questionable circumstances. And it really came down to one play 
but we'll get to that eventually. So we begin with setting the stage. As I said, it is 1908, and the National League pennant race of that season was a triple threat match among the three teams that had come to dominate the National League in the first decade of the modern era. So just to clarify what I mean by the modern era, that's since the 1901 yeah. inception of the American League. Right? Can I guess the three teams? Sure. Uh, the Cubs, mm-hmm. the Pirates, mm-hmm. and the Giants? Mm-hmm. That's I, right. I, yeah, I probably wouldn't have got the Giants if you hadn't already mentioned them. Not going <laughs> to yeah. lie. Not gonna lie. <laughs> so to elaborate here, we've got the Pirates, as you mentioned, who won the first three pennants of the century in 1901, 2, and 3. Uh, the New York Giants, who took back-to-back pennants the following seasons in 4 and 5. Mm-hmm. And of course... As you mentioned, the Cubs, winners of the 1906 and 1907 pennants, who were naturally looking to match Pittsburgh and their three straight pennants in the 1908 season. So all season long, the standings were, as the French say in Canada, a clusterfuck. (laughs) The Giants of New York never held a lead larger than four and a half games, and even at their lowest, never found themselves out of the hunt, never trailing the lead by more than six and a half. Pittsburgh never held more than a two and a half game lead, nor were they ever more than five games back. And the Cubs led, uh, never led by more than four, nor did they find themselves out of contention either, falling behind by only six at their worst. The Cubs look like they have the biggest swing there. Yeah. But, you know, as it's, everyone's it, going, it, back, everyone's and going back and forth, up and down, it's just, you know, everybody's tight. And a three-team race is way more interesting than a two-team race. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it comes down to the very last days of the season. So on September 23rd, the Cubbies and Giants met in New York City at the Polo Grounds. The two teams had been in a dogfight with each other and Pittsburgh, as we mentioned, met that day tied for first place in the National League. The Giants stood at 87-50, and 50, and the Cubs held a record of 90-53. and 53. The Pirates trailed behind by just a game and a half at 88 and 54. So as you've probably noticed, the Giants have played six less games than the Cubs. Mm -hmm. And that is of note and will eventually come into play. On the mound to start the contest for the home Giants that day was none other than future Hall of Fame righty Christy Matheson. So cranky old John McGraw has got his best guy out on the hill. And he's having the best season of his career at this time. Yeah. And the Cubs sent left-hander Jack Feister out to the bump. And both teams had rosters stocked with future Hall of Famers. The Cubs featuring the likes of Joe Tinker, Frank Chance, Johnny Evers, and Mordecai Three Finger Brown. While the Giants had Matheson, Joe McGinnity, and rather Bresnahan, who, fun fact, was the first 20th century catcher elected to the Hall of Fame. The second ever. Uh, Buck Ewing was the first in 1930. Nine, and they also had a first baseman named Fred Tinney. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tinney never ended up enshrined in Cooperstown, but he was, by all accounts and by the numbers, very good at his craft as well. But we're not talking about this particular event because of all the Hall of Famers or because of Fred Tinney's ability to play first base. We're talking about it because Fred Tinney woke up on September 23rd, 1908, with a bad case of lumbago. Or, or lumbago. Cool. Sounds great. Sounds 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 great. It's <laughs> just it's making it's a, his lums lums go go. Yep. It's a fancy term for lower back pain. Okay. 
Okay. Okay, so that sucks. He wakes up with back pain. Yeah, so apparently Fred wasn't getting the proper lumbar support. Mm-hmm. So he ends up with a case of lumbago or lumbago or however you say it. Mm-hmm. So John McGraw has to alter his lineup for the afternoon contest. And who does he call on? He calls on rookie Fred Merkel. Ah. Now, who is Fred Merkel, you ask? I don't know. And I quote from Fred Merkel's Saber bio by Trey Strecker. The son of Ernest, a German immigrant, and Amelie Ney Thigelman, Merkel, Carl Frederick Rudolf Merkel, was born on December 20th, 1888 in Watertown, Wisconsin. Fred grew up in Toledo, Ohio, where he went to school and earned regional recognition as a star halfback in football and fastball pitcher in baseball. Playing under the Americanized name he had adopted, Frederick Charles Merkel. He pitched for semi-pro teams in Toledo starting in 1905 and tried out with Newark in the Ohio-Pennsylvania League in 1906. Later that season, Fred signed to play third base with Tecumseh in the South Michigan League, but was quickly shifted to first base. Returning to Tecumseh in 1907, the 18-year-old Merkel batted 271 and led the league with six home runs, prompting his purchase by the New York Giants for $2,500. So six home, home runs uh, is a big deal. In, yeah, it's in, dead ball era. In uh, 1907, yeah. So, so he started as a pitcher, but he got moved to first? Yeah. And uh, he's got the power, as we say. So he made his major league debut on September 21st, 1907. And Fred appeared in 15 games and batted 255. Okay. So that's Fred. And he's still a rookie in 1908 because of the limited service time when he was brought up in 07. And he's the youngest player in the National League. Mm-hmm. He's 19 years old. Yeah, holy shit. Yeah. He played, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he's just a baby, and he played in 38 games in 1908, but only 11 of them, 11 of them were at first, since the Giants already had 10. There weren't many opportunities for Merkel to start there. Mm-hmm. In fact, the game he was penciled into on September 23rd, when Fred Tenney called in with lower back pain, was the first one he had ever started at any position in the major leagues, and that seemed like fate. Because the Chicago Tribune two days earlier on September 21st wrote, quote, Here's something for the Giant fan to consider. Suppose Fred Tenney should be crippled. That would be a calamity, wouldn't it? Just kind of like just <laughs> an ominous thing. That write. sounds like a threat. <laughs> yeah, That's I a know. threat. That's what suppose, I suppose, he, suppose his legs just happen to snap. <laughs> uh, Guest columnist Bugsy, you know, like it's yeah. a mafia dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it would in one way, wouldn't it be keep? Yes, it would in one way, but it wouldn't keep the Giants from winning the pennant. There is a young fellow on the bench named Fred Merkel who could fill that job better than nine tenths of the first baseman in the league. He is crying for a chance to work. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, if he gets hurt, fuck it. We got Merkel. Yeah. Which, you know, he's, he's had his numbers, so he's, you know, got a high reputation. So Merkel takes his f- post at first base and watched Christy Mathewson deal. His counterpart, Feister, matched his efforts on the mound and on the scoreboard. Neither of the two hurlers allowed a run through the first three innings of play. But in the top of the fourth inning, it was the Hall of Fame-bound Mathewson that first relented a hit to Cub shortstop D- Joe Tinker, who found a bit of outfield grass. Giants outfielder Mike Dolan 
attempted to make a play on the ball, but he could not stop it, and it sailed past him into the prairies that were the Polo Grounds outfield, and Tinker circled the bases for an inside-the-park home run to put the Cubs ahead one to nothing. All right. All right. So Matthewson had not given up a homer since July 17th, which was hit by, you guessed it, Joe Tinker. Oh. Mm-hmm. A little fun little fact there. And it was an inside-the-park home run. Yes. Because yeah. Mike Donlin, I believe I typoed his name there, uh, messed up, and it got past him. So. Yeah, he was too aggressive. Yeah. So in the Giants' half of the fifth, they managed to battle back and tied the score after a single by Buck Herzog, who was moved to third on Roger Bresnan's sacrifice after taking second on an error. And finally was sent home by a Mike Donlin single, making up for his mistake on defense in the fourth with his RBI. Matheson continued to deal on the mound, collecting nine strikeouts by the game's end. And Feister could not match the great Hall of Famer in the K's column, but he was matching him in the only statistic that mattered at the time. Runs allowed as the Cubs and Giants kept pace with one another all game long. Feister remained on the mound for Chicago into the ninth inning, and got the leadoff man, Cy Seymour, to ground out to second base. So he's one away. The next batter for the Giants was Art Devlin, who promptly singled. So we have the winning run on first with one out. Okay. Moose McCormick then comes to the plate for New York and hits a... (coughs) Moose McCormick? I'm just choking. (laughs) Now I'm not laughing at Moose. (laughs) It's a great name. It is a great name. No, I was just choking. Oh, okay. So Moose McCormick then comes to the plate with New York and hits a sharp ground ball to second base, which forces out Devlin. The ball would likely today be a double play, but Devlin's aggressive slide into second broke up the double play chance, so McCormick was able to reach first base on a fielder's choice. I was going to say, Moose must be fast if it's not a double play. Yeah. But so, sounds like he just fucking like he ranked up. the guy. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The good old days. <laughs> Yeah, so now we got a man on first with two away. So up comes rookie Fred Merkel in his first major league start with just 47 major league at-bats to his credit in the ninth inning with two outs, winning run on base, with the pennant lead on the line. There's just a guy on first, though, right? Yeah. All right, so... So it's a pretty clutch moment. You might it's say. a big moment. It's you know, a big moment, but I mean, it's not like it's a guy on third. It's a guy on first. You yeah. know, it's, it, you still got to keep the game going. But. Right, right, true, but still. Okay. So Freddie comes through in the clutch with a long single to the right field right. corner. There you go. Sending McCormick first to third and leaving Merkel standing on first base. Perfect. What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll find out. I don't know. And now comes New York shortstop Al Bridwell to the plate, ready to make his claim to fame. But for Al, he'd make a claim to fame he could never have imagined. Oh, God. What? <laughs> what? Okay, never mind. Just tell us. I was like, wait, wait, what? Is he gonna like shit his pants at the plate? No, no, <laughs> no. God, no. He thought he was gonna get the game when it instead he passed out and puked blood. <laughs> I don't know why I'm going. This I don't way. know. I don't know why you're going disgusting dark room. Yeah, Feister poured in a fastball on the first pitch, and Bridwell swung mightily and drilled a line drive single to center field that sent infield bumper. Umpire Bob Emsley ducking for cover, but more importantly sent the winning run in Moose McCormick to the plate for a 2-1 Giants victory. 
The Giants fans at the polo grounds went wild as Moose crossed the plate and began to flood onto the field in celebration and towards the exits. Which at the polo grounds and also, at least for Yankee Stadium at the time, maybe for some other places, were all located in center field. Well, and I mean, that's I think we need to do an episode on like rushing the field. Like there is that that <laughs> is a so tradition. Many yeah. That that happened up until like both that, for positive and negative yeah, reasons. <laughs> yeah. There was some positives in there. But no, they used to even look at all the seventies stuff. It's like I know it's not great, but like, mm-hmm. people rush the field when your team wins on a walk off on a championship. Anyways. Yeah. So yeah. they do that. They run on the field and they're like, Moose and Moose is like, get the fuck out of my way. <laughs> yeah. So they're all on the field and so you've got this sea of people coming out there and at the end of the game to both celebrate and to exit the game, but there's only one problem for the Giants, and its name is Johnny Evers. Okay. Or maybe Cubs manager, first baseman, Frank Chance. Okay. Who knows? All right. And basically saying there were a few different accounts of the events. Like the New York Times the next day, September 24th, wrote that it was Chance that noticed a base running mistake by Merkel. But most accounts since say that it was Evers, so we'll go with that, okay? So Evers noticed that in the fray, Fred Merkel, perhaps to avoid the crowd, turned away from second base and veered towards the clubhouse. Well, yeah, and look, I, 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 I'm just, I know this story a yeah. little bit. Not as well as you're telling it to me. Yeah. But like, it's not that it's much not- of an unknown story. No, but. but I still, a part of me, it depends which way I wake up. Because a part of me is just like, what was he thinking? But the way you describe it, people are rushing out on the field. Like, the band is on the field. Like, the game yes. is over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yes, and I generally agree with your take. Yeah. But the story still must be told. Okay. <laughs> so... Uh, Evers noticed in the fray, yeah, he uh, turned away from second base and veered towards the clubhouse, according to Merkel's own affidavit, quote, 15 feet away from second base. Okay. But I should notice he, he does, he didn't say that until years later. Okay. So Evers at this time shouted to center fielder Solly Hoffman, who retrieved the ball and threw it to second, even though the field was filled with fans celebrating. <laughs> <I know. laughs> and according to one account, Joe McGinnity, who was coaching first base, or third base, I read a different... It doesn't matter. They used to sometimes have, like, three-man crews, so it could be both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or, like, he was the... Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> he was coaching first base. Oh, okay. So, for the Giants that day, rather than his regular pitching duties, apparently intercepted the ball and threw it away into the crowd of fans. <laughs> He's like he like notices that like they're like trying they're to get, trying to get the the out. So but he's how like, is this? How is it still? How is it still not? There's fans on the field. The game can't be going simultaneously. Apparently, it can. <laughs> so Evers apparently somehow eventually retrieved the ball and touched second base and appealed to Hump. Empire, Hank O'Day. Is he fucking like in his like getting changed at the time? <laughs> no, it's all still on the field. <laughs> like, um, umpires Emsley and O'Day then consulted one another quickly, and O'Day, who saw the play from behind home plate, ruled that Merkel had not touched second, and on that basis, Emsley ruled him out on a force, <laughs> and O'Day ruled that the run did not score based on official rule 5.08A, which states, quote, a run is not scored if the run 
runner advances to home base during a play in which the third out is made by any runner being forced out. Huh, I know. It just, it just, it's to hear it in such detail. It's just, it, you, you feel for it. Yeah. So what's the fallout here? So Evers had, oddly enough, tried to pull a similar stunt two weeks earlier in a game umpired by the same Hank O'Day. What do you mean he tried? <laughs> oh, he tried to. He tried oh, to do I the thought you were- So obviously a game two weeks yeah. earlier was also walked off, and he tried to pull this. He was like, yeah. you know, so he was like, Hank, remember two weeks ago I tried to pull this on you? Come on, man. Yeah. And then bizarrely according to sabers edition of the inside game which is their dead ball era committee newsletter uh from september 23rd 2008 quote the umpire this time found in ever's favor even though what merkel was accused of doing was common practice Uh, you know so obviously it happened all the time if games were walked off the fans were just like okay game over over the wall we go and out and like whatever yeah you know yeah it's just everything's done. The guy crossed home plate. Like mm-hmm. It's over. He had a single. But I don't know. guess perhaps maybe most of the time the guy would actually touch second to make sure that it was clear. Well, but who knows? Well, you're supposed to. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. But, like, really, you're splitting hairs at this point. Okay. But anyway. Right. Um, so... Uh, retelling the story in 1944, Evers insisted that after McGinnity threw the ball away into the sea of fans, Rube Crow, a Cubs pitcher out of service for the day, retrieved it from a fan and threw it to Tinker, who relayed it to Evers for the out. <laughs> so let's see. That's a that's like a eight, four, or eight other yeah, guy, eight. fan, pitch one to shortstop to second. Yes. So it's like something a, like that. <laughs> someone's like sitting there with their scorebook trying to follow along. Like, I got this. I got this. I got this like, how do they even know that that was the right ball? Like, how did they, maybe they just pulled a fucking ball out of their ass, too? That's true. That, that's true. Yeah. But anyway, maybe the account mentioned in uh, the, this one here with the Rube Crow uh, getting the ball off the fan was one mentioned in Ken Burns baseball where apparently actually two Cubs players followed the fan <laughs> who got the ball and was heading home with it as a souvenir. Hey! <laughs> hey! <laughs> and apparently, Get back here! <laughs> apparently they beat him up when he resisted. What? Yeah. <laughs> Just like... That, yeah, he was how like, is no. this a legal play? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If any of this is true. <laughs> you think once again the guy with the box score like okay now they're beating a fan <laughs> okay yeah. I don't know how to put this in the triangle with the diamond there's no symbol for this <laughs> yes. uh, okay yeah so they beat him up when he resisted yeah. and then threw the ball back. back to Tinker so the guy got a shiner as a souvenir Oh, my God. Okay, so, but of course, by rule, even if this is true, after a fan or a player who was not in the game touches the ball, it's a dead ball. So 100%. Never, all these things are just coming to me now. I've never thought about this that much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so a contemporary account from the Chicago Tribune supports this version. Uh, eight years prior to this account, though, the 1944 one of Evers telling, Evers claimed that he'd apparently gotten the ball directly from Hoffman. So his story's changing all over the place. I have to think that that fan, I, I can't, I'm just, 
I'm just fucking thinking. And especially with all this, like, uh, the Aaron Judge, the home run balls and all of that stuff that, like, has been going on with, you know, mm-hmm. pressure for fans to give it to the guy or, like, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking of, like, a skit where, like, a fan catches a ball and then they're, like, walking home and there's, like, two, like, cubs, like, like, creeping on them from, they're like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> why? Why is Wilson Contreras guy, got his bat in his hand? The guy who catches Judge's 62nd home run is driving home and Giancarlo Stanton. And pops up in the back seat. <laughs> Just say, hey man, how are you? <laughs> so Merkel claimed that while Evers was trying to recover Hoffman's throw, he went back to second base and stood there during the Cubs' protest and stayed there until Christy Matheson came along and relieved him, saying, quote, come on, let's go to the clubhouse. Emsley said he would not allow the claim. This all sounds like it took a ridiculous amount of time to be considered one play in baseball. Yeah, sounds like it was a huge fray. But anyway, so they retired to the the clubhouse or whatever. And then it was five years after the play in 1913 that Mark Merkel did admit that he had left the field without touching second base. Okay. But it was only because Emsley, the umpire on the base pass that day, assured him that the game was over and the Giants had won. So he was like, I, okay, I did leave. I did walk off the base. But the second, but the umpire in the infield told me it was over, so it didn't matter. Sure. Why not? But, you know, this is five years after. And, like, who knows? Like, who would remember the and whatever? Just like, there's keeps no. keeps changing. Yeah. So, um,. In 1914, Hank O'Day, the home plate umpire, made the argument that Evers' tag was irrelevant anyway since he had called the third out after McGinnity interfered with Hoffman's throw from center field. What do you mean? So he called the out once once the giant came in? Six years after the play, he's like, like, well, it didn't matter because I already called the out on McGinnity, which nobody had said that before this point, so... So I think everybody's just like make trying to tell a story that makes themselves sound good, no matter whenever someone asks them about it. As you say, a, a clusterfuck. Yeah. Yeah. So since it was nearly impossible at this point to clear the field of fans, O'Day ruled the game over on account of darkness, and the contest was called a 1-1 tie. Yeah. I mean, are there guys like hitting the showers like, good win today? <laughs> Like, just, just, you know, the, the, you know. Sure everybody's just fucking totally confused by yeah. what just happened. Yeah. Like what? Okay. By, by, by some of the accounts I read that like a lot of the players on the giants had already hit the showers and I then mean. had no idea what was going on until exactly. after the fact. And then someone, I guess the manager McGraw would come in and be like, apparently it's, Apparently we didn't win. It's tied. Yeah, it's tied, and the game's over. Because they're, they're like eating dinner. <laughs> what? <the laughs> yeah, okay. So, All right, man. Okay, so we lost that one. So yeah. uh, on October second, National League President Harry Pulliam rejected the Giants' appeal of O'Day's ruling, and the Cubs called for a forfeit victory and declared the force play on Merkel valid and the game a tie. Okay, so does it finish as a tie? Yes. So officially, it's a tie. What does that do to the standings? Well, we're going to get to that right now. Right. The three-team pennant race continued to the final days of the season, and due to rainouts during the season in the last week of the race, the Giants had to play 10 games. And after the Merkel game, the Giants won 11 of their last 16. 
Okay. So they had 10 games, I guess, plus, I guess, six rainouts. So they had 16, and everybody else had... So they went 11 and 5. It's pretty good. Yes. And finished with a record of 98 and 55. Wonderful. The Cubs won eight of their last 10 after the Merkel game to also finish at 98 wins uh-huh. and 55 losses. The Pirates, who beat the Dodgers 2-1 on September 23rd, the day of the Merkel game, to gain half a game on their rivals, won nine of their last 10 to force a makeup game with the Cubs on October the 4th which the Cubs beat the Pirates 5-2 to two and left themselves tied with the Giants and with the Pirates half a game behind both teams at 98-56. and 56. They were out of the race. So it's Giants and Cubs. Yeah. And we're at October 4th, and you said this culminates on October 8th. Yes. On October 6th, the National League Board of Directors... So there's another appeal process going on, I assume, here. So on October 6th, the National League Board of Directors agreed with its umpires and league president... Pulliam making the ru- final ruling that Merkel had failed to touch second base and that the force rule was correctly applied. This left the Cubs and Giants deadlocked at 98 and 55, and thus a makeup game was required to decide the National League pennant, which was to be played on October the 8th. So there you go. I, I, I feel like, I mean, I really have like no actual proof of this, you know, hypothesis, but. You know, I just feel like they really knew that the call was bullshit, but they were like, we can make money off another tickets if they if we just have another game. 100%. So, <laughs> no you know. no doubt. So, I mean, yeah, the Giants should have won. Mm-hmm. I mean, I th- I think at this point it we the the story's just so fucked up at this point that you can't help but feel bad for the yeah. But okay, so October 8th they're just like, we're going to have one big... Yeah, one final game for all the marbles in the National League. So basically a National League World Series. There you go. Kind of. Well, it's like a NLCS. Yeah, exactly. But it's one game. Right. So <laughs> It's the... a playing game for the World Series. Right. So, you know, as we're kind of talking about right now, in these days a World Series berth was at stake with the taking of the pennant, so the Giants once again sent their ace Matheson to the hill. But Matheson was not in his best shape, saying, quote, I'm not fit to pitch today. I'm dog tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, did a little sleep. I was just, uh, just feeling a little uh, nappy uh, today, you know. Yeah, but that's not off while I'm on the mound. <laughs> yeah. Not not feeling it. I'm getting a business hammock put in the dugout today. <laughs> <laughs> just picture him putting it, like, like showing up in a nightcap with like yeah. the candle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sleepy Matheson. <laughs> sleepy Matheson. <laughs> the crowd there to take in the rubber match was estimated to be 40,000 people, which at the time was the biggest in baseball history. I think I also heard a quote saying, like, it, like, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, that game had the most people that didn't see the game. You know, had the most people show up that didn't get to see the oh, game. Oh, okay. You know? I see what you mean. So, um... Feister once again towed the rubber and pitched for the Cubs in the rematch, but was lifted in the first after first inning after hitting Tenney, walking Herzog, who was eventually picked off, and giving up a double to Donlin that scored Tenney and walking Cy Seymour. So he's not he's no. not having a great start there. No, that's not a good start. So a three finger Brown entered the game and managed to get out of the jam without another run scoring. In the Cubs half of the third inning. Tinker led off with a triple and scored on a Johnny Kling single 
Evers walked. Frank Schultz then hit an RBI double, which gave the Cubs the lead, and Frank Chance followed with a double of his own, which would plate two more runs. It was 4-2, and from there, Chicago set the cruise control on their way to a 4-2 victory and a third consecutive National League pennant, and eventually went on to defeat the Detroit Tigers four games to one to win the World Series. Oof. Yeah. So the New York Times game story on September 24, 1908, blamed the loss on, quote, censurable stupidity on the part of player Merkel. For the rest of his life, he lived with the nickname of Bonehead. Yeah. And I love what they call the incident because yes. it's fucking so just childish yes. for me. Here we go. One yep. couldn't make the argument that Merkel's boner <laughs> cost the Giants the pennant of 1908, but John McGraw always defended him. McGraw pointed to the fact that there were a dozen other games that his team should have won that season. Regardless of McGraw's words, the misplay continued to haunt Merkel, who batted only 191 without a single home run in 79 games in 1909. Oof. Quote, listen to them hoot, he said to the manager, John McGraw. You're making a mistake to keep me here. They don't want me. <laughs> okay, that's a little dramatic. <laughs> He's all despondent. Yeah. And McGraw replied, to cheer him up, he said, quote, I wish I had more players like you. Don't pay any attention to those weathercocks. <laughs> They'll be cheering you the next time you make a good play. Listen there. <laughs> These weathercocks got no idea how good of a guy you are, you fucking boner. <laughs> Which, <yeah. laughs> Which is my favorite new old-timey word is weathercocks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, McGraw had a keen eye for how players would develop, and his faith in Merkel was rewarded in 1910 when Merkel replaced Tenney and batted 292 with 70 RBI as the Giants' regular first baseman and cleanup hitter. The next year, he was 283 at the plate and hit career highs in home runs with 12 RBI with 84 and stolen bases with 49, finishing seventh in voting for the famous Chalmers Award. Ah. You almost won a car. Yeah, almost. So one of his homers was, quote, the longest four-base hit ever seen on the Cincinnati grounds. So there we go. There's his power. Yeah, yeah, he did it. In 1912, he batted a career-high 309 with 11 home runs, 84 RBI, and 37 stolen bases, considered by many to be his finest season. But Merkel's bad luck in big games would continue when in Game 8 of the World Series that year against the Boston Red Sox, Fred singled in the top of the 10th, which scored Red Murray from second, giving the Giants the lead. So he's poised to go from zero to hero mm-hmm. if the Giants close this out, right? Yeah. So the bottom half began when Fred Snodgrass's infamous error in center field, in which Snodgrass positioned himself to catch the ball, but it deflected from his glove and a weak throw allowed pinch hitter Clyde Engel to reach second base. Ah. Uh. Okay. Harry Hooper then flied out and Steve Yerkes walked. Tris Speaker came up and hit a high foul near the first base coach's box. Most observers agreed that it was her, his ball, but Merkel backed away m- when Matheson called for the catcher Myers to make the catch. 
Why is Magnus so I don't know I know. No, no, no. Get out of the way, Fred. <laughs> Myers, you get I, this one. Yeah. Myers. <laughs> I'm the fuck down here. <laughs> Once again, how long do these plays take to unfold? Well, back then, you could do a pop-up 500 <laughs> feet, according to fucking... Well, that was like 30 years ago. I know. Yeah. <laughs> So the ball fell to the ground, giving Speaker another chance, and this time he slashed a long single to right that started a winning rally for the Bosox. Next day, the headlines in New York lamented Fred Merkel and read, quote, Bonehead Merkel does it again. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's kind of reaching. Yeah, you know? that, that, that would feel... It's Matheson's fault. Yeah, <laughs> why are you directing traffic? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Matheson overmanages. So, anyway, so Merkel performed well enough at first base for the next several years of his career, and in August of 1916 was batting an uncharacteristic 237, and the Giants traded Fred to the Brooklyn Robins for catcher Lou McCarty. I mean, at least he doesn't have to move. True. Yeah. <laughs> Just got to go across town. Across town. Yeah. He filled in at first base for Drake, Jake Dobert and played in 23 games for Brooklyn down the stretch and even made three appearances at the 1916 World Series. Okay. So he's got another World Series under Yeah. Him. In early 1917, Merkel's services were sold by the Robins to the Cubs for $3,500. That's awkward. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. That is awkward. The Cubs' first baseman, Vic Sire, had broken his leg, and the Cubbies needed a serviceable replacement, so Fred was their guy. It was probably that newspaper guy from earlier. <laughs> yeah. Suppose the first baseman breaks his leg. He just wanted to do it, and he eventually did. He did. He did. He just got thinking. He was like, that worked out well. Yeah. Fred's not catching a break. <laughs> Maybe I'll visit Chicago this weekend. <laughs> yeah, it's really Fred's buddy. <laughs> this, is a, this is what we're uncovering. As, as you say, I love like the new newspaper columnist, like, like <laughs> Joe Mafia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he remained in the Cubs starting lineup for three more years, playing in another World Series in 1918. Another World Series of sketchy circumstances. We covered that one. Go yep. listen to that episode. That was a year yep. ago this month. Yep, that's right. But this was the end of the line for Fred Merkel in the National League. Even though he was only 31, Bonehead Merkel couldn't secure himself another contract for the 1921 season, and so his NL National League days were done at the age of, as I said, 31. It was, however, not the end of his baseball days, as Fred spent the next four years as the first baseman of, the Roch of Rochester in the International League, where he put up some huge numbers. In 1924, he batted a strong 351 and crushed 22 homers. And before the start of the next season in 1925, George Stallings, who was the Rochester manager, according to the Sporting News, was, quote, willing to trade his star first baseman to the New York Yankees as backup insurance for Wally Pipp. But he Wally Pipp's playing just gets busted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just gets chirped for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. But he expected young Lewis Gehrig in return. Ah, I mean, it, they should have done it. <laughs> yeah. Hindsight's 2020. The Bronx Bombers would eventually acquire Merkel in June of 1925, but they held on to Gehrig and sent $6,000 to Stallings and the Rochesters instead. Mm. Sounds about right. Yep. So Fred remained as a coach and occasional player in Rochester through 1926 when he lost his sixth World Series. 
Oh, I guess that was in New York, sorry. Yeah, New York, not Rochester. Yeah. I got it. Yeah, the Yankees released, sorry, here we go. Yeah, the Yankees released Fred after that season to make room for his former Giant teammate, Arthur Fletcher, as the head coach, and he returned back to the International League to be player-manager of the Reading Club for 1927. He was dismissed in June after playing in only 38 games. So that's it. Yeah, not very successful as a manager. No. So two years later, he took a job managing the team from his newly adopted hometown of Daytona, but his tenure was short-lived. One day, a player referred to him as Bonehead. Oh, I was going to say that had to come back. <laughs> yeah. And Merkel walked off the diamond and never returned. What a little crybaby. <laughs> yeah. What a little crybaby. I'm sorry. Now I don't feel bad for you, Fred. <laughs> like, Fuck that. I'm not dealing with that. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I mean, but just le- forever? Apparently. <laughs> I don't well, know. not forever. Yeah, I get to. He was bitter over the events of the Boner game. Merkel avoided baseball after his playing career finally ended in 1926, but he finally appeared at a Giants old-timers game in 1950, and he got a loud ovation from the fans. Yeah, time heals all. Yeah. So over his career, Fred saved enough career earnings to move to Daytona Beach, Florida, and purchase a farm where he raised fruit co- crops. Fr- fruit cocks. <laughs> <laughs> Fruit crops. <laughs> fruit, fruit, fruit crops. Yep. He was hit hard, though, by the Great Depression, and the downturn forced him to work on a bridge project for WPA County until things began to pick up financially after World War II when he partnered into a firm that made fishing lures. There you go. <laughs> so he's doing so all kinds of different baseball things. Baseball player, fruit farmer, depression hits. He's like, Building oh, a bridge. Shit. Well, FDR had to yeah. do some shit there. Then all of a sudden he's like, I could build a bridge. Builds yep. a bridge. And then he's like, you know what? Fishing. Yep. <laughs> Got it. So that's what he did. So after that, Fred shunned reporters. He usually only wanted to ask him about the bonehead play. He was a regular at Daytona Beach Islanders games and at baseball clinics. Merkel spent his retirement playing bridge, golf, and chess, games he was by all accounts above average at. These skills earned him a place at the bridge table with McGraw and Matheson during his years with the Giants, and he was one of the first active ballplayers to make golf a serious hobby. Ah. So, you know, that probably helped keep him in the league. I mean, he was a, he was a good player as well, but, you know, yeah. helped him... He was rubbing shoulders with the big names, right? Yeah, and I'm sure in his retirement, he probably hated it. Everybody wanted to talk. He's like, "Why does no one just want to talk about fishing lures with me?" (laughs) Yeah, that's. I have I have been running a successful fishing lure business (laughs) for (laughs) longer than baseball. (laughs) So on March second, nineteen fifty six, in Daytona Beach, Merkel was out shopping when suddenly he became ill. Fred asked for his pills. Laid down and died right there at the age of 67. Where was he? Where did he die? He was just out shopping somewhere. I'm just going to lie down. Yeah. Uh, Fred, down. We're, in, we're in Walmart. <laughs> yeah, I just need to have a little nap for a bit. <laughs> so anyway, so he died at the age of 67. So that's the story of Fred Merkel's entrance into Audible baseball history. Falling victim simply to bad luck, the whim of an umpire, and some underhanded tactics by the Chicago Cubs who became cursed by his boner <laughs> after they had the Giants' victory overturned on a bullshit technicality 100%. that shouldn't even have counted in the first place since the ball should have been dead as soon as the fans were on the field and or touched the ball. 
There were even some speculations that the ball Evers used to appeal to Hank O'Day may not even have been the ball that was hit by Al Bridwell. That's right. Yep, as you mentioned. Eventual Hall of Fame umpire Bill Clem said that the call on Merkel's boner was, quote, the rottenest decision in the history of baseball. That's damn right. And Al Bridwell also sympathized with Merkel and said, quote, I wish I'd never gotten that hit. I wish I'd struck out instead. If I'd done that, then it would have saved Fred a lot of humiliation. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that's a, like I said, that's the story of Fred Merkel and his boner that cursed the Cubs for until 2016. That's what I'm going with anyway. I'm saying that that's the real curse. That's the real curse? Yeah. Merkel was the real curse. Mm -hmm. Merkel's curse. (laughs) Merkel's curse. We're we're starting a band called Merkel's curse. (laughs) That sounds like a great name. All right. Wicked. We go on tour with Puig Destroyer. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So, you know, of course, thanks for uh, the the Sabre article by Trey Strecker. And uh, I I actually have a cool, there's a cool uh, comic. Aren't you supposed to look at this? I know. I was going through the scores and stuff. It wasn't really like that relevant or whatever. It was just so you could actually visualize what was happening in the scorecards or whatever. But cool. um, You've done a, you've done a scorebook on the, on the ninth inning. Yeah. So I tried to do more, but there was, there was really, it was really hard to find a a breakdown of the entire. I wouldn't have, taken nearly as much joy in it as you wanted me to so it's <laughs> yeah, so. good you would waste your time <laughs> okay so yeah but i also want to there's there's a cool comic in there that kind of shows the uh, thing it was from the from the inside game edition i mentioned there the comics by molly lawless and then a lot of the biographical uh, information that i used was from uh, crazy 08 Okay. How a cast of cranks, rogues, boneheads, and magnates created the greatest year in baseball history, which is a great book by Kate Murphy. Uh, but yeah, so thanks to those people for doing most of the research for me. And uh, yeah, that's the story of Merkel's boner. <laughs> I love that in this comic, A, Merkel looks so sad, and also in his obituary is, Giants first baseman's boner led to the loss of O.A. Bennett. <laughs> Honestly, okay, so I'm not going to lie. I did not realize that Merkel's boner was because they called him bonehead, like it was bonehead and you're being a bo- I thought it was, I'm an idiot, and I was like, yeah, Merkel's boner. Like, yeah, yeah. Did something happened with, like, Merkel boners. <laughs> no, <laughs> was, no. Not until, like, right now. But I figured it out eventually, and yeah. I was like, that's a really weird thing to call... <laughs> A s- misplay. Yeah, a historical misplay. Well, I guess now we'd call it a toot bland or whatever. Would we? Thrown out on the base pass like a nincompoop or something like that? or I guess. I've yeah. never... I'm, I've You've never, never heard of a toot I don't toot think I've never heard that until you right now. You fucking have. I swear <laughs> to God, we've had this conversation. We have it like once a year. Regardless, <laughs> that was Merkel's boner. Yeah. Uh, curse no, of Merkel's boner. Yeah, the curse. Uh, until next time, uh, fall, or tune in because we got a World Series story coming next. And follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and and Instagram at doing.baseball. We're on TikTok as well. I'm at Sean Do Baseball. I'm at Ed's Do Baseball. And uh, yeah, make sure you give us a give us a rating or a review if you liked it. If you didn't like it, whatever. I don't care. Just do it. Um, okay. Till next time. I'm uh, Sean. And I'm Ed's. And we were uh, bringing you the baseball. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.